What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Hunting Public Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Garrett Prawl, also known as DIY Sportsman, Shane Simpson, and Ryan Carpenter. And we're going to be talking about hunting big woods. Over the last several years, Garrett's been putting a ton of effort into learning new areas in big woods habitat, and he's been really successful at it. And it was really fun to hear his opinions on things and see what he's looking for when he's out scouting or hunting new pieces. Before we get into the podcast, I wanted to remind you guys that we can help save you 10% off all bear equipment if you use our code THP10. So if you're in the market for a new bow, go over to beararchery.com, check out what they have to offer, and again, that code will save you 10% off of all of their bows. So make sure you use that to save yourself some money. Also, last year we partnered with the social media platform Go Wild to combat mainstream social media censorship. Go Wild is a free social community where your photos aren't censored, instead they're encouraged. Go Wild gives you points for things like sharing trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. And as you earn points, you unlock awesome rewards, and if you create a free account, you can unlock $10 just for trying it out. So visit DownloadGoWild.com to get started, or check the description of this podcast and click the link, and it'll take you there. While you're on Go Wild, if you want to check out the store, they have a bunch of things that we use when we're out in the field. So make sure to check out their store. And if you want to save 10% at checkout, you can use our code THP. All right, guys, let's talk big woods hunting. Shane's, Shane's a road, road warrior. He's got no excuse to be sleeping. He needs to be editing. I've built an autopilot for that Explorer, don't you know? <laughs> Is that thing still going strong after turkey season? Um, actually, I had to do some do some transmission work to it. When I went to Michigan, actually when I was hunting Wisconsin before I went to Michigan, I noticed that like I'd hear the fans like, <gasps> like a dump truck when it's taken off from the stoplight. Uh-huh. And I'm like, why does that sound so loud? And then we got going up the interstate and it was making that noise and we pulled over. I flashed, uh, flagged my buddy down with the headlights when he was in front of me and so my truck's making a lot of extra fan noise for no reason. And um, anyway, we we hunted, and then I went home, and then I went to Michigan. And I've always known my transmission slips a little bit for the last mm-hmm. few years, but I've learned to work with it. It's just like you got to let off the throttle at the right point, and then it shifts. <laughs> and I'm like, at some point, this transmission's going to go. Anyway, I drove to Michigan, and... I've never really paid attention to my RPM gauge as far as like when I'm doing 75 on the interstate and I got cruise set. Yeah. And it was like 3000 RPMs or over 3000 RPMs the whole way. And my fuel economy hasn't been the greatest the last few years coming back from Michigan. I, um, I was like, I think my trend, I think my overdrive has gone in my truck and that's why it's the, the, I think the transmission fluid's getting too hot. That's why that fan's kicking in yeah. trying to cool it. And that's why I'm at 3,000 RPM. So I knew what the fix was because of an Explorers or that particular transmission for Explorers and Fords in general is so widely used. Mm-hmm. There's fixes out there. Like yeah. there's a company in Wisconsin that sells these little servos. And what happens is the servos wear out, fluid slips through, and it slips changing gears or you lose a gear. Mm-hmm. Well, they've made an adapter. You just swap the servos out. And there's a little bushing in there. It kind of clogs the hole and makes it function again. You can get another 200,000 miles, mm-hmm. $300 for the parts. Do it yourself in your garage or in your driveway. So I spent a day doing that. 
Took it around the block. It shifted better than it's ever shifted. It's smooth. Got on the interstate doing 75. I'm doing 2,000 RPMs. So now I'm getting like three or four miles to the gallon more. <laughs> the, That's the, a basically yeah. a new yeah. rig. Yeah. 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 I can make it to a half million miles. I, got, <laughs> I think it's 300. Close to 340,000 miles that's, on it now. That's so. great. So. I like hearing that. My truck has a powertrain warranty on it, lifetime. So as long as it's in my name, something goes wrong with it. And I just had to get a new transmission at 96,000. Wow. What, what kind of vehicle? F-150. It's Ford. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems Which, to be a trend, the transmission. Well, mine's the but at least I got that warranty. Yeah. So that's nice. Yeah, but I'm hoping... I'm hoping to just maybe that's why they added it because they know it's a problem. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll fix that. We'll just give them a free fix if it ha- goes wrong. Yeah, which is was nice because it was going to cost me a lot of money and it didn't cost me any. So yeah. that's good. Yeah. So I want to hear about some big woods hunting. So that's where the conversation is going to start. I know that you do some of that, and I'm really interested to hear about all the things that you're thinking about. I don't really have a direction other than talking deer hunting, talking things learned, and uh, just asking questions along the way about, yeah, some of the things that you've been picked up, on, you've been picking up on, and what you're thinking about. So I guess to start to just get the conversation rolling, what are some of the things that you're excited about applying this season that you've learned in the past season or two? I think for me, it's. It's finding more locations that are similar to other locations that I've had great success in Mm -hmm. and expanding my reach. Because it's taken so long to find these little hidden gem type spots where it's like, man, these things could be good every year Mm -hmm. around this time frame. And you get this data, you know, library built up and then you look for other spots like it and then you find one. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, after, you know, two years, three years, four years, multiple different properties, you got this little library built up. And, you know, maybe 10 years down the road, we'll be having this conversation. I'll have, you know, 20, 30 of these spots that you can just, you can't even <laughs> bounce around quick enough to, to scout them all. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the, the goal. But it certainly seems like in an area that's so vast, it's like you can kind of break it down a little bit and it'll take you a while more so than, than properties that are more, I guess, cookie cutter. Mm-hmm more typical, you know, river bottom, hill country, where there's people just generally know there's enough information around about and how to hunt And there's broken them. habitat, right? right. Like right. when you're limited on cover, it helps you pinpoint an area a little bit more efficiently because you're riding off giant areas where yeah. if you and got solid timber, it's a lot more to sort through. And you can still find those little pockets of diversity. And a lot of times that's what I look for when I'm even looking at maps mm-hmm. I'm trying to find those diverse pockets. And sometimes it's obvious Sometimes the maps might not be recent enough. Maybe you got a logging operation that's active in the maps from eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So I like to look at the more recent maps just to make sure they're like, okay, all the logging activity is, is current, or I just drive around and, and figure it out that way. Um, but even sometimes just walking underneath the canopy, you'll find stuff that wasn't obvious. Mm-hmm. And I can even remember looking at areas on a map initially and saying like here, 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 and here, like based uh, trying to apply things that I'd learned hunting swamps or marshes or hills in the past. And some of those areas were good. And a lot of them had hunting pressure. And then there was these other places that just over the course of hunting throughout the season, you pick up on, you see sign and it's like, Oh, never thought of this spot potentially being good. Maybe this is night sign or whatever. And 
over time, it's like, oh, no, this actually is like a good daytime spot. I wouldn't have expected it. But now that I look at it again on the map, it does make sense big picture wise. And those are the type of spots I'm telling you about, like, okay, I need to build a library yeah. of those. Yeah. So what do some of these places look like aside from diversity? Like more specifically, are you seeing oaks? Are you seeing a certain type of spruce? Are you seeing water? Like what are some of the standout things that you've picked up on that you're going to be looking for on the map when trying to add to that list of places? Yeah, so I usually like to find a combination of, we'll say old growth trees, young growth trees, water, like in that kind of a combination. And maybe even, you know, some sporadic, like super recent clear cut where it's just like weeds, grasses, mm -hmm. berries, things like that. Um, or just kind of open like CRP type grasses. Like the more mixture of those types of, you know, different levels of cover, I feel like the better, at least in terms of finding a, a starting point. Mm -hmm. So do you think that when you have that uh, clear cut or CRP grasses that you mentioned, do you feel like that's just some sort of break that the deer are attracted to naturally from uh, like a feeding standpoint? Like there's just more in that area that they're able to feed on or do you think that they're bedding in those areas or what does that kind of look like? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of both. Like take a clear cut, for example, where I'm at, when you do get a clear cut, the first things that'll pop up are just like weeds and like, you know, briars and berries. And it's just, you know, so thick you wouldn't want to walk through it for the first couple of years. Um, and then like, it seems like sometimes deer might feed in those, but not necessarily be traveling through them or using them as much with the exception of like the packed down, you know, tracks that the machinery was, mm -hmm. was using. But then eventually that stuff grows up to the point where it's more suitable as bedding cover and it continues to grow. And then at that point, it's more like aspens, you know, poplar mm -hmm. type trees that are taking over. And then those will eventually get big enough to where like you start to see a lot of rubs in them. Mm -hmm. And then they get big enough to where it's like, Oh, now you can start to walk through them. You still wouldn't, think of it as a place to like climb a tree or mm -hmm. put a stand up or something like that. But you can kind of work your way around to kind of see underneath it. And that's the age of those clear cuts where it's, you start to see a lot of rut activity, like the does will bed in and around them a lot, especially if they got weird shapes to them, or mm -hmm. maybe it's a clear cut where it had butted up against a swamp. And so it's got this irregular edge of where the high ground left. And then you got bedding kind of all around it. And then sometimes like right in the middle, you have like these big hub scrape. Even if it's like mostly flat and the elevation is maybe like five or 10 feet mm -hmm. and you can put a camera on a place like that. And over the, like a three day span, you might get like seven different bucks that show up in daylight. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, now I, how do you hunt in a spot like that? And how do you, you know, find multiples of those? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just like one example, like the clear cut example. And eventually those get big enough to where like those essence get super big. And then, you know, I'm maybe trying to find other stuff that looks more similar to the age where I think it's the best from a hunting standpoint. Mm -hmm. Uh, swamps, I think are always good, but at least I've found that swamps tend to attract other hunters as well, especially on like the edges of them, you know, tamarack swamps, spruce swamps. I find a lot of tree stands mm -hmm. in those types of areas from both bow hunters and gun hunters, you know, you might be scouting in the spring, walking across the layer of ice and you're like, Oh man, like if you were a rifle hunter, that'd be a great tree. And you walk up to it and it's got screwing steps. It's like yeah. that guy yeah. could go up in that tamarack and he could, you know, see 150 yards clear across all of this you know, dogwood and, yep. and people definitely do it. And that was the type of stuff that I was initially looking for when I would first scout some of these areas that just go right to that. Mm -hmm. And then 
you know, oaks, it's like, it just depends on the, the particular habitat. Like you'll find these oak ridges that, you know, it might be one pocket where it's like, you got a dozen big white oaks and then I'll just go check them every year to see if they're going to yeah. be dropping that year. Mm-hmm. But then that might be the only pocket for, you know, a square mile. Yeah. And then black bears might be in there pretty heavy too. And there's like this interaction. It seems like sometimes between black bears and deer that I still haven't totally figured out, but there'll be like, you know, long spans where I just get like nothing but bears on camera and then they'll stop getting bears. I'll start getting deer. And then other scenarios where it's like a bear goes through and there's a deer like 20 minutes behind it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what that relationship is. I've talked to a few guys that seem to think that bears will be somewhat dominant and, you know, push deer, take the preferential, you know, acorns if there's only like a certain bit of them. Um, but I tend to find that at least for me, early season is much more difficult than it is in other habitat types. Mm-hmm. It's not like I can call my shots as well and say like, here's the bedding, here's exactly where we're going to feed. Like I can slip in there really close and figure it out. Um, early season, a lot of times, like I might just continue to scout and or just hunt areas. I know there's going to be a lot of does in mm-hmm. like this year. I'll probably just be hunting with my traditional bow and like trying to fill a couple tags early yep. season while at the same time, still collecting data and, and get some scouting info. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in the years that I have started hunting big woods more, the time frame that really stands out more than anything else is just that late October time frame. for a lot of the reasons that, you know, people across the Midwest like hunting late October but I tend to see that there's maybe slight differences as well compared to the average opinion of what people see. What are some of those differences? Well, how many times have you heard, okay, you find a, you know, a great scrape, you know, near bedding. And then let's say third week, of October, you'll, you'll get that buckle that'll show up on a certain day within a couple of days and he'll keep hitting it at night, hitting it at night day after day. And then as you get later and later into the month, he'll get a little bit closer to Mm-hmm. to evening a little bit closer a little bit closer and then finally like you get that cold front late october shooting light he's there mm-hmm. and that's your opportunity and what i tend to see more often than not is that in some of those great scrape areas it might be a three-day window let's say it's october 24th to 26th where i got eight different bucks coming through all in daylight a couple more at night they're all coming from different directions all different times of the day and then maybe in another spot in the same you know general area it's like a you know, two day shift or a three day shift. And then there's other spots where just a steady stream, like you don't go a day between like October 16th through like November 11th. You don't go more than a day that there's not a daylight picture of a buck on it. Hmm. And again, a lot of different bucks, like it would be hard to say based on these pictures, I need to be in there like tomorrow and expect moving from this area. Mm-hmm. Like it was still a little bit of a, it seemed random. Yeah. Signic- significantly less of a pattern Yeah. than maybe an area like around here in Iowa where you've got these timber draws and these specific food sources or destination food sources, if they're not making that same pattern every day. And I think of when you say cookie cutter, a great cookie cutter example that you would find here, for example, would be, you know, where there's a thick spot, you know, where there's a staging area food source fairly close to that. And then there's a destination food source. So you can kind of backtrack that. You could walk a field edge and look for scrapes, find a scrape with a big track in it. Then you kind of backtrack to some oaks that you can see in the timber. There's a rub there and maybe another buck track and some feeding sign under some oaks. Then you look further down in there and you can see maybe either on your map or a visual, there's a thicket there. And 
they kind of get consistent with that pattern until those food sources change. So maybe the crops are no longer available or they eat all the acorns, then they'll shift. But those patterns tend to last a little bit longer where in a big wood setting, they may be in a spot for a couple of days. And the next thing you know, they're two miles over here in a totally different area. And then they loop back around. Is that kind of what you're seeing? Or it, yeah. They, it, it feels like there's, there's some areas that it seems like the deer will be in all year. Mm-hmm. And there's other areas where they're definitely only in there certain times a year. And during the early part of the season, it's like, regardless if there's acorns or not, there's so much food available to them. Yeah. It's like they can, they cannot take a you know, step without you know, being able to nibble on something. Yeah. Weeds, ferns, grasses, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the more diversity, the more you, you, of that type of stuff you find. A lot of the examples I'm speaking of are areas that are tough to see through and generally you're not going to have far shot opportunities, but you'll go into other big wood scenarios where it's like more mature timber and you can see, you know, 150 yards through the canopy and those types of areas I'm not hunting as much. Mm-hmm. So that's like kind of the pre-selection a little bit. Um, I tend to find more sign and have more success in those areas that are a little bit denser. Do you guys have any questions so far? No, I'm just enjoying the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the density, you got to understand that. I'm friends with Garrett. So yeah, I, you I guys know talk about it. You hear it all I've the seen time. these trail cam pictures. I'm like, yeah. man, why are you teasing me like that? <laughs> yeah. Where's this place at? <laughs> is it is it the the diversity and the density that's keeping the deer there that you think? Yeah, and and then I think in a lot of cases it's like there's too much diversity and there's too much density. It's like it could never. That's part of why I think it's so hard to pinpoint. It's like they could be. It feels like to, when you're just going in, it's like they could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. even when you go in the intent of trying to find specific beds, it's like, oh, I found, you know, 20 beds today that, but I, I can't guarantee which one is going to be used at any given day, any given wind, you know, condition. And again, with the, you know, the feed and moving around and then you got other hunters and you got grouse hunters. I mean, you guys mm-hmm. got pheasant hunters, I'm sure down here, but mm-hmm. we have grouse hunters up by me mm-hmm. that are especially hunting in those, you know, clear cut type areas. And you might be on, on the one and all of a sudden like a, you know, a couple of grouse hunters come through and it kind of resets everything for a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, that's a big part of it, I think. And I think also it helps deer get a little bit older mm-hmm. because they're less effective for rifle hunters to just like shoot out right. an area. Mm-hmm. Like a, a big buck could just sit there and, and it seemed like a lot of times, you know, in, in one area in particular, I had a, I ran cameras for like three years in a row and it seemed like if a deer had gotten to like three years old, he was likely going to continue to grow. Last year was kind of an exception where I had three, like, really nice mature deer that all just, every one of them vanished. And I still have no idea what happened to them. So I'm still looking for a little bit of closure on that. Yeah. But, like, generally speaking, it seemed like, okay, he he, he looks like there's definitely vulnerability, but not predictability. Mm-hmm. Right. And so once the, the Orange Army goes in there and you're sitting there and opening more, it's like, oh, one shot, two shots, three, four, five, you know count 20 shots in opening morning and, and then all of a sudden like you know the day after muzzleloader season ends you get that big bucket gun on camera yeah and it's like, like he's just been laying he's just been laying moving. low yeah yeah, yeah. I, I do have a question and um you know i, I watched the podcast with joe rentmeister yeah. on here and and you know i enjoy listening to folks like yourself and joe that are are great at killing big bucks but one thing you two have in common is the the trail cameras i've used i've used trail cameras i haven't used them this year what is your strategy in areas like that if you don't have the trail cameras available for to 
to pinpoint where the big bucks are or to see some type of pattern? What is, if I said you can't use them anymore, what, what would change the, in your strategy? The biggest thing that would change is I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold out for like a particular size deer that I sure. hope is there. Because yeah, if, if I actually did that, if I, yeah, if I have camera pictures, I like, like, oh, well, there's these three I'd be happy to shoot, so I'll wait hey, for one of those. You've gotten comments on the YouTube video where yeah. some guy, the guy said, why didn't you shoot that? And I even asked you, why didn't you shoot that? And he's like, because I know there's a bigger one in there. Yeah. And you're not going to shoot that bigger one if you well, And in that case, there was like two bigger ones. Yeah. I didn't end up shooting either of them. <laughs> 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 but, but you had some great video, though. Yeah. You're sitting there like 10 yards on the ground right Yeah. Now. So, I mean, that's some of those spots, like, for me to even know to put a camera in a spot, I'm thinking like, man, this is – this is a sweet spot. So I would likely hunt it regardless. Mm-hmm. I just what, what told you it was a sweet spot? I mean, what in particular? Yeah, what clues? Yeah, yeah to, to like extend his question a little bit, mm-hmm. what clues as far as sign are you reading that are telling you mm, this is worth investigating to see if there's yeah. know, the type not, of buck Not that just I'm a buck, for. but a yeah, buck the type worth of buck. Right. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm following edge and let's say the edge is like a beaver swamp. And, you know, it's, it's pretty thick hardwoods on the, so there's like a corridor along the edge. And if I see big historical rubs all the way up and down that edge of that beaver swamp, okay, now I'm interested. And if there's like another clear cut in another 200 yards that does could be bedding in like, okay, even more interested. And then maybe getting through this little pocket where you're like you're trying to work your way through and it's real thick. And then it just kind of opens up into this little, little pocket, little opening. And you see this big licking branch hanging down and it's got a big thumb size thing it's all shredded a little bit of hair on it and you're like oh okay look back at the map again we're like oh yeah they're gonna they could come down here down into this clear cut and they could smell everything that's in there those are the type of areas where it's almost like once you you see it it's like this seems like a good spot and then you confirm and look it on the map everything makes sense you can but draw it, lines from location to yeah, location yeah. and say this is going to be a corridor that they're using yeah. to get from A to B. Yeah, and, and a lot of them are somewhat rut-based, right? Like if I find like pockets of doe bedding, it's like, okay, connect the dots using mm-hmm. transitions and, you know, thicker areas. It's probably somewhat like my in my mind, but to a greater degree uh, as far as deer is concerned. You know, I probably have a better mind in the turkey realm (laughs) but you know when i was growing up and i was bow hunting stuff i could walk through the woods and i'm like this is a deer spot this is a spot because i was wasn't targeting big bucks i just wanted to shoot a deer in my boat Mm -hmm. i was early in the month and and i just knew from being in the woods and seeing the things my mind said hunt here and i would hang a stand and have deer that evening i'd shoot one and and so I, i had a knack for that I don't have a knack for finding the big bucks, but you're probably to that degree where, like you said, you walk through it, you see things. Yeah. Subconsciously, you're recording all that, and then you say, ah, this is a spot. That but I, I, I will say I still struggle with finding them outside of the general rut area. Like late season, sometimes it's not as bad because you can track. Mm-hmm. But early season, it can, like it's it's an art. I mean, there's guys that are really good at it, like Steve Shirk, right? Like mm-hmm. they're, on the, they're on those bucks all year. And it's, it's very impressive. I haven't gotten to that level yet, but like, I feel pretty good with being able to find where they're going to get to during the, the shift to, mm-hmm. you know, around mm-hmm. the rut period. And then you're going to get, going to get a lot of daylight activity usually that time of year anyway. And you asked also, you know, it's like, how do you know if an area could have big bucks if you're not using cameras? 
in some of the years where I knew there was a couple big ones around, it seemed like there was more rubs, mm-hmm. more big rubs, just like volume wise. And last fall, when I mentioned like a couple of those big ones just disappeared and I was like, oh, maybe they just shifted or whatever. And so I tried to find them and never quite could. And then the spring went back and scouted that area again. And it was like not nearly as many rubs throughout the, that greater area. So that makes me suspect that they did get shot or hit by a car or something. Yeah. Interesting. I am curious how much weight you put on finding tracks. Like if you're trying to find a big buck and you're not using cameras and you see like the scrapes, like big scrapes are a big one for me as well. Like the, the situation you just described really made a lot of sense to me. And I would say that that's something I also would be, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, excited about moving forward, but also tracks are a thing that I feel just give away those punks so quick, you know, like all of a sudden you find that little spot where there's a trail and you can get that good, you know, gauge on track size where there's just that perfect little spot where it's a nice track catcher. And obviously, like you said too, as you get into the winter and you get snow, that becomes even easier. But I'll put a lot of time into looking in those spots where whether it's in the scrape itself or just on a trail that's headed down a scrape or like a transition line. And I think that a lot of times just finding those help me have confidence, just picking spots within, like you said, a greater area. Okay. I saw a big, big track here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start spending more time just poking around, trying to figure out like a specific ambush location where I can be right on a spot that I think he's going to present a shot at. Yeah. Now I'm curious, do you, do you employ anything special to try and find tracks throughout the you know drier portions of the year? Cause it's like, if you got an open scrape, like then it's pretty obvious if you got mm-hmm. a fresh track in there, you can see exactly how big it is. Or if you got like, you know, the edge of a road or something where they're crossing into a, a field or, mm-hmm. or something along those lines. But if you're just in the, the heavy timber, it's like, unless you got some type of moisture, like dew or something where they're walking in a grass and leave an imprint of a certain size. Mm-hmm. For me, it's always been really hard to, to figure out, okay, there's a fresh track here and I can, I can tell how big it is if it's not in the scrape. Is yeah. there anything that you picked up on? Um, my friend Ben, who I hunt with quite a bit, started telling me this and it, it's, it, as it gets drier, it gets harder. But in timber with leaves, for example, I've started getting down into the like rustle of the leaves and putting my hand into those tracks. Like getting through the leaves to actually put my hand in there and feel how big that is. And eventually, you know, you can also just kind of bring some leaves apart, but finding that fresh disturbance, just like we would when looking for Mm -hmm. turkey sign, Mm -hmm. you find the scratching and everything, just getting in there and investigating the print that can be created from that, or even on a dry spot, like thinking of how the consistency of the soil is in like a Northern setting. Sometimes you get that like mossy, uh, fluffy, sandy soil and just really getting in there and investigating, you know, width, length of those tracks as well. And just paying And a lot of times you're just making some sort of guess at a certain point. I think, I mean, like, like you said, the, the road is another good one that I like because if you're on a, on a uh, gravel road, a lot of times those really big tracks will stand out and, I think that's helpful, but that's also pretty 
um, hit or miss, you know, sometimes big bucks, or if there's a very roadless area, there's not crossing the road that yeah. often. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes that can be a great opportunity, even in dusty, sandy stuff. Like I remember in Minnesota last year, finding a, a, a track that was in a gravel road where there's all these dead tracks and they were just kind of little stamps or little dust marks. And then his track, <laughs> you know, and yeah. it was like, super obvious yeah and gravel was pushed out of the way like you could tell the weight of him just was yeah enough to push gravel out of the way it's like that's that's definitely something that i'm probably gonna uh, well shouldn't say definitely probably but i'm probably gonna shoot (laughs) (laughs) but um how do how do you guys go through and pick out um like sign when you're like when i've scouted i've like i've said i listen to the podcast i watch numerous podcasts uh, you know, Dan Infault, yourself, mm-hmm. or, or even THP mm-hmm. and Joe Rentmeister. And like Joe mentioned something about antlers when they're going through the trees, they'll tick the little things. And, and Dan will say something about historical rubs like you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm scouting, like I was doing some scouting earlier this summer, there's so much to take in. Like I'm following a trail, I'm looking at, I forget sometimes to look at the tracks because you see a bunch of doe tracks and you just, they start becoming... You know, just so many, you just kind of just blur a whole them out. bunch of like yeah. stamps and on you top miss of the each bigger other. tracks. And then I'm like, okay, I should be looking for like historical rubs off to the side. And I forget to look for that because I'm trying to take in so much. Oh, this looks like a an old bed, you know, late mm-hmm. season bed. Now there's a little bit of grass growing in right now. I mean, how do you digest all that and and catch it and not miss it? Because I feel like I'm missing so much when I'm walking through the woods. And if I take the time just really slow down then i'm out there for eight hours and i've covered 100 yards yeah. you know <laughs> yeah uh, you want to go first um no i mean if you have a good answer i, I feel like i gotta calculate yeah, so, that a little bit so i think for me I, I have something i'm looking for usually like the other day i i had a scouting mission where i just went out i got out there in the morning i had one mission of mine it was like this little 15 acre pocket like i know i've overlooked it in the past i want to dissect it and see what's there and the key thing in my mind I'm looking for, I'm like, this could be a good, you know, pre-rut spot because it's, it sets up really similar to another spot that I have had success in. So I want to get in and get out and look exactly like, I don't really care if I see doe tracks or whatever. Like I'm looking for this specific sign. That specific sign would be like the historical rubs in the, the Aspens, the evidence of like, if I can find that primary scrape, like awesome, but just like how thick is it underneath there? And and just generally, what's my sense of how similar that situation lays up to the other one? And I ended up going in there for the first, I don't know, 200 yards. It didn't seem like anything special. Kept going, kept going, kind of working the, the transition edge, like all around the, you know, it's kind of like a swamp, you know, again, like narrowing up into that uh, slightly higher ground that was thicker. So it was both thick, but like different kinds of thick. Mm-hmm. And eventually it got into a certain point where I was like, okay, here's like a trail that's actually, so I got on that trail and started walking, but I wasn't really paying much attention and, uh, followed that for a little ways and then started to see like slightly more cues that like, okay, there's more deer, more deer sign now, like just more, like another trail that intersects more tracks, but like still not exactly what I was looking for. Ended up get back down the transition line, made like a full loop around pretty much. And by the time I got into a certain point again, it was like, okay, there's definitely a lot of deer sign in general in here. Maybe not fresh like right now, but it seems like they use this area quite a bit. So that may, that means like I need to figure out if that, you know, again, that scrape or that, uh, historical rut information is there. And so 
from the edge. I came up a little bit, got onto one of those trails that actually went like right down the middle of the high ground. And it was an obvious trail. Like, you know, some of those trails is like us oh, mm-hmm. kind of seems like a deer trail. This is like one of those ones that was pretty obvious. Cattle trail. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, which is, it was especially obvious since it was so hard to walk through because it was pretty thick and the mosquitoes were just like vicious. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, basically kind of tunnel vision and, uh, ignoring stuff that maybe I shouldn't be ignoring, but eventually got to a point where it was like, I came up into an area of like, Oh, this looks like a scrape. And it wasn't even really pot up that much, but just like visually my eye caught what appeared to be a scrape area. You know, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's June, everything is leafed up. And I was like, yep, there's the licking branch. And I was sitting down there again, like the size of my thumb had hair in it from last year. Like clearly wasn't pawed up. Like maybe there's deer in here this time of the summer, even like, you know, hitting the licking branch, but they're not pawing it up. But like, that was what I was looking for. Like that one thing that lets me know that, okay, I can at, at very minimum put a camera here or hunt it. And there's going to be deer activity here. Like almost guaranteed late you October, can revisit early that mm-hmm. exact yeah. spot. Like I, if I'm speed scouting this, this place in the future, that's the spot I'm going to check. I can just get in and get out and like check it. And then continue to kind of zigzag through that area. And it's like, oh yeah, now I'm seeing the historical rubs, you know, and that to me put together the, the overall picture that yes, this area did set up similar to the other areas that I was hoping it would. And if I was there in February or not February, maybe like March or April, like after the snow melted, it would have been super obvious Mm -hmm. right away. I found it like immediately. Mm -hmm. So it was just hard to find in the summer. Is that the area you ended up killing that big Wisconsin? No, this is a different area. This is one I was just there a few weeks ago. Okay. So you're looking for one of those other areas. Yeah. It's a similar type of spot. You went in there with the purpose to look at that. Right. What, 15 acres? So if I was just, if I was just willy nilly walking through without a goal in mind, like I would have been like, oh, there's some deer sign in here, but like. Basically what you started the podcast with, what you're 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 explaining exactly trying to match that mm-hmm. little yeah. pocket of what's been successful it, yeah and like i said too like whatever that is was not what i was looking for when i first started hunting that type of habitat yeah but you learned it yeah and now you kind of target those areas it's the same way with me for turkey hunting that i've learned where i can expect to find turkeys or where i typically do so when i go in blind hunting another state and I look at the map, and I was like, I want to start here. Oh, this yeah. kind of looks what, and sometimes you have success. But. Yeah, I would say that to play off that, it's like I always talk about planning a route with places to check off. And a lot of times I'm doing this in season because it's like a, mm-hmm. you know, traveling trip. I don't oh, yeah, really you, hunt You guys deer. travel all over the place. Yeah, so and I don't really hunt whitetails at home, right? Like I don't, I don't have a home place that I go to anymore. And when I go into these areas that do, you know, go down the checklist, a lot of times, similar to what he just described, it's like, I'll just be kind of blasting through just getting to those areas. And I don't mean blasting through, but just not paying a ton of attention to the details until something really obvious catches my eye where it's like, whoa, that's a, that's a big rub or this is all, this is a heavily used trail. And then I maybe start to investigate the little details. But a lot of times I've got these specific spots in mind that I'm going to check out. There has to be something pretty major in between for me to rethink everything because of the consistency of all the factors that play together where there's generally big bucks. Now I miss tons of them. I guarantee it. Cause I'm 
I'm moving so much to just go to those places, one of the next that I have confidence in. Mm-hmm. I know I miss a ton of them, but I think having that plan and just following those lines to get back there. And then if it's not there, just pull out quickly. Like one example that I have, and I've been talking about this one a lot, but it's fresh. So, you know, it's, it's an easy one to do. I was, it was last season in Minnesota and we wanted to check out this one spot. We made a, a, a pass. We found that the Creek was a lot lower than what we thought. We're like, Oh, let's walk down this Creek and try to see if we can find some tracks crossing it. So we start walking down that Creek and it's like, yeah, at first there's some tracks and pretty obviously doe tracks. And then all of a sudden the tracks just started going away and there would be like less and less and less to where there was finally none. And look at the map and it's like, yeah, we're kind of just burying ourselves into this monotonous habitat where there's nothing necessarily Mm -hmm. that would hold them on an edge or not a lot of diversity in that area. So we pull out and we go to the next place that we have kind of, uh, some expectation that there could be a nice buck in there and start walking those lines. And as we're walking those lines, certain things just pop up. And I think a lot of that too, in the moment is just instinctive. Like if I'm walking and the path of least resistance goes that way, Mm -hmm. I check my compass and it's facing towards a transition of cattails and alder, for example. Well, if that trail's going that way, I'll just keep following that. Keeping wind in my favorite. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Always, always planning these routes too with wind in mind first. I guess I, I fail to mention that a lot because <laughs> I just take it for granted that like, that's what I do, you mm-hmm. know? So like always going, if we've got a West wind, always heading straight into that westerly wind and just kind of following those edges. And ultimately what will end up happening most times is big clues pop up, whether that's a rub scrape, or track and then it's like okay let's start investigating where he could be going where he could be betting on an edge and where can we ambush that buck or where can we go in there and try to rattle him out of his bed mm-hmm. you know just just oddball stuff that um you know pops up in the moment just creating theories on the right. fly too well do you, do you um when you're scouting do you pay attention to wind at all you know, like he's an in season scouting. Yeah, so gonna... yeah, for in season scouting a little bit more, but, yeah, but not not during. So okay, so you're not worried about bumping them out or anything. No, like that. I mean a lot of times like I got a I got this spot, this spot, this spot. I want to track. Like, I don't have time to. I only got a certain amount of like days and like times of the day that I can even get out mm-hmm. there. Like I'm not gonna wait for the right wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm just curious if you, anybody thought about that when they're actually scouting. The out. only thing I think about when I'm scouting outside of season is wind currents through an area. So trying to Take pay a note. Att- yeah, yeah, trying to pay attention like I will look at the wind direction. I'm not necessarily worried about spooking the deer. Well see that's that was mm-hmm. my question. It's like if you have the wind in your face as you're scouting, then you may end up getting real tight to him if he's bedded in there and you bump him. I would in my th- way of thinking is I would want to bump him from 100 yards away and let him know he got out of there successfully. Uh, I want to bump him point blank. I want to see what he I want okay. I want to bump I want to I want to scare him to maybe get a visual on him to know what he is. And then I guess I'm thinking I'm, I'm just not going to get that lucky to get that close. Even if the wind in my face, and when he jumps a lot of stuff, I scout is so thick. If he jumps up 20 yards in front of me, I'll never see him. him, Yeah. Yeah. I think in those situations, if it's in season, getting in there and being able to look at the fresh sign right now, like Mm -hmm. even if he doesn't run away, like get in there, smell it. 
Like, see if he smells yeah. big, you know, because I, I believe that's Needs true. Needs a little you know? spice. If he, smell, yeah, <laughs> if he smells super strong and there's, you know, stain, the beds just get that stained smell of the tarsal gland, and then the big tra- there are big tracks going out of it or the bed's big. I mean, those are a lot of good mm-hmm. clues to say, well, and to be honest, and it's a little different in a, in a big wood setting because patterns aren't as similar but if if um you know it is some sort of broken habitat or if you get in there and you bump him and it and there's all these big beds and it's just mm-hmm. like oh no i stumbled on the lair like i, I kind of love that i kind of love spooking him at this point because i used to get so paranoid about it that you just get lose all hope but if you can kind of just Think to yourself, well, this isn't that big of a deal. He obviously loves this spot. Mm-hmm. And, if, again, if the wind's in your favor, you know, he's going to come back and smell that you were there. But what's the difference between you and a coyote or a, or a bear at that point? Like, mm-hmm. you're just another thing passing through. Now, I think where things would get weird is if you were, let's say this is a private land setting and you do that same thing, you bump him out of there, and then you're like, oh, man, this is the lair, and you, you know, carve out a tree put a permanent tree stand in there got sticks there and there's all this like obvious human change that just happened now it's yeah. maybe like he comes in and he's like i don't know about that but just your mm-hmm. ground sent to there my opinions changed on that a little bit mm-hmm. well uh, quite a lot over the years yeah. so yeah mine has too uh, just from watching just looking at the cameras like oh a bear went through and then a or a coyote went through, or a grouse hunter went through, and there's a deer right behind it. Mm-hmm. It's like I think they know, like mm-hmm. they can they can smell that scent and know if it's a they get you in the tree. Now now you're in trouble. But mm-hmm. if they just cut that track, I guess it's a behavioral just thing like too. Like a tracking dog knows yeah. which direction mm-hmm. a deer went. He hits that, and then he's like, "Oh, it went this way." They the, can. There's been a lot of times where I've had deer hit my ground scent and either not care or like acknowledge it clearly, and then go back to what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I've seen or them look follow. around. I've like, seen them follow. Like, I've seen curiosity. people's, yeah, people's trail cameras, like, show that they're following that as well. Mm-hmm. It's pretty oh, I've had deer do it. I got up in the stand, and a deer was out there, I don't know, 100 yards, mm-hmm. and cut my track and hit it and sniffed its way the exact path through the tall grass right to my stand. <laughs> and it was a little young doe, but I was like, Look at that thing! How curious it is! Mm-hmm. You know what's you know other deer. I'm sure. Did she follow your climbing six up the no, tree? No, she got here. <laughs> she got here and where I'd laid the stand. This is back when I used those big heavy stands, and I'd set everything around on the ground, and yeah. I gotta take off stuff. I'm sweaty, and oh yeah, I, I had screwing steps back then. They, they're mm-hmm. still, I think they're still legal in Minnesota, but I don't use them anymore. But put that up. So the deer got there and was just smelling wherever I'd laid all kinds of gear down, and it didn't really know where the final destination yeah. was. And so then it just kind of looked around and, you know, went about its way. Worth mentioning, too, is that some of these areas I've been describing that are more rut-focused for when they'll be good, those bucks aren't in there this time of year anyway. Mm-hmm. I might get, mm-hmm. if I have cameras out in the summer, I might get one or two photos of the deer in velvet that just seem like they're passing through and they won't be back again until mid-October. Mm-hmm. Sounds a lot like the area, you know, I ran cameras in last year, and I haven't put any cameras this year. And, I, man, I put on miles out there and hiking in this heat mm-hmm. and and putting cameras here and i'd run them here for a while and i had like an array of cameras like if a deer comes through here i'm like yeah and i got a couple you know smaller but decent bucks not huge like one or two pictures of it 
And so then I moved my cameras here. And then I moved my cameras. And I was like, I'm going to cover this whole area. I'm going to find out where they're coming and going from. And there, the, another fellow, that, a friend of mine, he had some cameras. And he said, oh, they never show up in here until later in the season. Sure enough, you know, right as the season's about to kick off, you know, late August, early September, on into September, these deer start showing up. And, um, you know, it was it was basically useless for me to have my cameras out there because they were not using that area. I don't even know if they were ever using the area that I was concentrating on initially. I think they were just kind of getting to the fringes there. Mm -hmm. And so this year I didn't run any cameras. Sorry to put this all on my, <laughs> my hunt. It's all good. <laughs> no, I, don't, I, I just thought wasn't that. I was like, concerned about a, it at all. <laughs> this is scary. It's supposed to be talking about Big Woods. Anyway, I'll, I'll briefly talk about this. But um, this – my thought this year is like i'm not even going to waste time with cameras I, I think that to me mentally that starts screwing around my head and i mm -hmm. should just i have more fun when even if there might not be a big buck in there i think there could be potential mm -hmm. and i'm oh, sitting yeah, there dude. Oh. and so that's the way i'm gonna hunt this year and i'm gonna go to where my friend sent me those pictures where those deer seem to be coming from and so they do play a little bit of part but i'm not gonna run them and and then chase my tail mm -hmm. around like moving cameras around this year but yeah that stresses me out and yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I haven't used trail cameras, cameras for a while, and I think that it has helped me pay attention to some of the details that I wasn't earlier, and I think that it also just allows me to tap into instincts a little bit more and just kind of go with the flow and not worry about things as much, where if, if I know too much, it's actually a bad thing, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, even just a visual, sometimes I can tiptoe too much where I think when I have this mentality of I'm going to just go hunting, I'm going to check these places I have confidence in, and I'm going to keep going down that line until something pops, I usually end up having a little bit, uh, well, not, not a little bit. I have a lot better luck, and I have more fun doing it. But um, I think that one of the things that helps in a lot of situations, me find a starting point is the cover that is either keeping people out or is so dense that they can tuck in there and hide. Like that's kind of the, the starting point. And that can look a lot different in big wood settings. So I'm curious, um, what specifically on a map, if you were to say, like, you find, or, or I guess also curious, do you find that still in big wood settings? Like, are you finding some sort of pocket that's like that security cover that that deer can bed or he can bed in a multiple places through here? So I'm going to start in there looking to see if there's clues that he's traveling through. Because like, obviously, you've hit on a lot of the historic rut sign, like the big licking branch or the historic rubs. But as a starting point, even if you're not going to nail down exactly where he's bedding mm -hmm. is, is dense security cover a factor in your decision-making when going into a spot originally? It's never not far away. Okay. Yeah. And it depends on the time of year. And I guess it's worth saying too, like, this region that I've been hunting that's, you know, quote unquote, big woods, like there's big woods in, you know, central Missouri that looks oh, totally yeah, different totally and Pennsylvania and, oh, and yeah. Southeast. And like, mm -hmm. everybody's got their own different brand of big woods. But, but I do believe that there are some consistencies throughout 
I think that's worth noting. Yeah. Like what you just said about the, the, a, a while ago, the, um, inconsistent patterns. People say that everywhere. Like it doesn't matter if you're like in Maine or if you're in Georgia or if you're in Arkansas or Wisconsin or Minnesota, that is a consistent thing where the patterns aren't as day to or you know, daily as much as they are like a looping type yeah. of pattern. Like that's a very consistent theme, I think. And maybe if I found one of these, you know, big deer in mid September and he's eating white oaks, maybe that's a different scenario. Mm-hmm. Maybe he is doing the same thing day after day after day. I think that does happen too, just based off of some experiences that others have had. I've never had that experience either, but I think it's probably pretty damn hard to find because you've got this gigantic area and it's like, right. Well, he may be moving like hundred, just like deer here. He may be moving 150 yards in daylight. And it's like to find that is, and there may be enough security cover where it's like, okay, I'm going to go down and mark every single one of these possibilities. And you got 200 different possibilities. Like there's enough security cover in all of these places that, that, you know, could set up Mm -hmm. because you might not be in the obvious spot. It might be in that one little weird overlook spot that everybody talks about (laughs) the oldest buck being in. It's like, how am I ever going to get lucky enough to find that one spot? Mm -hmm. But that's what it feels like anyway. Oh yeah. I, I completely agree. I don't think that that's an easy thing to, I think, yeah, at least at this experience level that I'm at, I think it's just, throwing a you know just throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall until it sticks like i have no idea how to say there's some sort of consistent pattern especially when you have not hunted an area for years and years and years and you know it like the back of your hand like that's going to be the best way to go about those early season hunts i think yeah the i know a guy that uh he he's not super well known but i looked up to him a lot and like try to follow what he does because he's been hunting similar type of habitat for decades probably mm-hmm. and shot a really a lot of really nice bucks and you know his strategy he, he runs cameras too but he scouts all the time and he just builds this year over year library of data and a lot of times he's he'll go out of state then he won't even do like preseason scouting out of state all of his data is based on in-season scouting for you know, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And then just through scouting while he's there, he's like, Oh, I, you know, bumped deer here this year. I bumped, I saw a big buck doing this thing this year. And now he can go in there. He knows exactly what to look for. He doesn't need to scout it in the spring per se. Mm-hmm. He just, he knows those patterns and like the year over year stuff. I think maybe, I mean, it's important everywhere, I think, but especially in big woods, a lot of times that's like, it's so key because it's so hard to get the other types of Intel that you'd be able to get in other types of habitat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's getting re- repeated years of in-season scouting, so mm-hmm. what he's seeing is what he can expect to see the following year. Yeah. And as long as the tree grows, right. you know, it doesn't change a whole lot. And, and, like, hunting pressure can screw it up, obviously. And But, like, I've talked to him about hunting pressure, too, and he's like, ah, I don't worry about it. He's <laughs> like, it, it ebbs and flows, and, like, deer, a good deer will be deer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you need to. Yeah, I, I – yes. I 100%. I used to get frustrated that. when my hunts would get screwed up, when they, or I thought they got screwed up. Somebody would come through there, and I'm like, dang it, and I'd just leave. And nowadays, I mean, even like <laughs> out in Nebraska, I had those guys dove hunting and shooting around me, and I stayed in the tree till dark because I've yeah. learned from just staying in the woods or staying in the tree. You know, maybe I'll move location. <laughs> Most times I just stay there. Mm-hmm. 
deer come out later on after these guys you know especially if they're not visibly blowing them out of there Mm -hmm. if you like if you anticipate that they're right there and even if they're walking and their wind's blowing in there if you didn't actually watch them come out of there or hear them come out of there they're probably still in there especially if you suspect they're in there already i've seen deer come out and hunters walk by never see the deer the deer just looks at them watches them walk by and as soon as they get out of sight and the talking subsides they go back to doing what they were doing and i'm like i can't believe that deer didn't run away mm-hmm. you know and so i mean i'm that's kind of the, the thought i have i'm like these deer live their lives out here they get bumped they they learn to adjust and if you just quit every time you get your hunt gets messed up you're not going to see anything if you walk get out of the tree at that oh, point. Yeah. you're already there just sit there another two hours yeah and, question i have for you what do some of your setups look like and what are you looking for as far as uh yeah setups go and in addition to that do you ever try to utilize like in a clear cut or even a swamp where you can see a long way do you ever utilize the observation type mentality yeah so usually it ends up seeming like my setups are kind of haphazard because they might be the best that I was able to make happen to be where I need to be. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'm in a tree where it's like, ah, I'm kind of exposed here, but it's not really set up for a ground spot. And like, I'll just have to be really still. And, you know, I always try to make it so that if I have a destination spot, like a scrape, it's on my strong side. Mm-hmm. So I can just pick the bow up and come back to full draw and shoot. Like that's always my ideal and it might be a ground spot where it's like oh you know smaller aspen trees or whatever like there's not really if i do climb that maple over there like i'm gonna be super skyline that doesn't make any sense a lot of ferns in here like oh there's a blowdown over here if i go set a stool next to it i got ferns covering my lower half of my body i got this big you know 24 or 20 inch diameter tree hanging here that the deer are going to walk around and like that one ground hunt, I kind of set up like that, the one I did the video on. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I saw so many deer just sitting there that had no idea that I was there because that tree was giving them, you know, a buffer that they weren't right up on top of mm-hmm. me. But yeah, good enough cover kind of in front of me, behind me. I had, you know, little saplings in front of me and then a whole wall of them behind me. And just like the ferns that I could just sit there and, you know, film deer after deer go through over Same the course of your, a few days the big buck you shot you were right beside a fallen tree the root ball and everything yeah yeah that's yeah. what i thought with that it one seemed too. like the, those that horizontal cover can kind of help you at ground level to help break up your outline then you're not just like mm-hmm. you know this perfectly human form when i look through the woods these days it doesn't matter what time of year it is i'm like there i could there i could there i could there i could because you also do that when you're turkey hunting I think when you're looking down through the woods and you see all the, when you can see the ground and there's like nothing but tree trunks touching the ground and there's nothing else going horizontal. It's like, that's a no go. Mm-hmm. Turkey hunting's the same way. The only way you can get away with it. Turkey hunting is if you can keep, you know, you're going to call that Turkey straight here and you're going to be able to keep your body square to that tree. That's the only way, but how often does that even yeah, work out? Right? right here. And then you're going to be like this. <laughs> yeah. And then he's <laughs> going to be able to peg you sticking off that tree, but it's, it's the same thing with bow hunting off the ground. It's like anytime there's just a jumble or something that just is is. Uh, I love like different. what he has the fallen logs. Fallen like when, trees. when I get up and especially in the the open woods uh, that I hunt in Minnesota for turkeys, some of the spots like you said, you feel like you're just stuck out there. And then there was one spot there was like a tree there. Another one had fallen here. There was a tree 
upright growing still and i just got tucked uh-huh. in there mm-hmm. and so i sweet. felt like just my head was poking up i was like they're never even gonna know oh no, you here. can get away with yeah. anything in those mm-hmm. types of setups yeah. so like buried like you did behind that big log with uh, those deer around you that you're just part of the environment mm-hmm. and they're just ignoring you yeah. yeah well and if you think about it too i i always think that deer's vision is so it picks up on obviously movement but also just some standout blob so as in in same with ours too. This is one consistency between our vision and deer's vision. If you're looking down through the woods and it's again that trunk, trunk after trunk after trunk after trunk, and then there's a down there is a down tree. You don't look into the specifics of that down tree. You just breeze over it, and maybe you notice that yeah, there's something there, but you're just breezing mm-hmm. past it and you're not looking into the specifics. But it's easy to pick up on a specific if it's this oddball shape outside of a otherwise uniform setting with trunks just touching the ground like if you can see a bunch of trunks man something sticking off the side of it everything picks up on that immediately Mm -hmm. so horizontal and vertical cover mixed is how i always just generalize that and that can look a lot of different ways but trees are the best down trees overhead cover is nice too when you can find it Mm -hmm. or even like a little you know spruce or something oh yeah yeah or you get like a an aspen or you know some kind of tree that's got like a pine or a spruce next to it, and they kind of, the branches kind of like go Great. past, it and you just yeah. tuck yourself right in there. Help with shadows. Yeah. And everything. Yeah. You asked about glassing, mm-hmm. and uh, I I wish I could do it more, and it seems like a lot of opportunities where I would like to do it or think there could be value in doing it. It's like okay, I could glass from here. To get to there, I got to walk through all of this mm-hmm. and get my scent over all of that. There's no clean access to get in there. And once I'm up there, I can see 100 yards. Yeah. You know, maybe it's like a little pocket of swamp, but then once you hit that alder line, it's like you can't see into the alders at all. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's a clear cut, but it's like, oh, the way that the land rolls, I can only really see this. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to be 100 feet up to see further than that. And so it's always kind of that trade off of like, oh, what's the potential value I get for this intel versus the potential damage I could be doing by getting back in there and not having it be a hunt. But there has been times where I've been say hunting, like on the edge of a lake and I can see, Oh, I see moving up there, pull up the glass. I'm like, Oh, there's a buck walking right along that edge over there. I haven't scouted that before. And I go walk over there and check Mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. Um, so I definitely like to be able to see, it just doesn't always work out where it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's a challenge in big woods again cross board it's just there's too much stuff in the way to see very far and that can be frustrating but i was curious if there was any creative ways that but the lake thing is a good a great example of that um another thing in in a setting like that that i always think about is a a river if you could see down a river now obviously every body of water is different but if you had some sort of shallow river where you could see down a long lane i've always liked that as well and otherwise big timber just because it's a one good line you know it's just a place and what are you looking for just watching deer cross yeah just deer cross like a power line if you're hunting dry land yeah and and that's exactly what i was going to say next but hunters are drawn to power lines like a lot of people do that in a power line Mm -hmm. setting especially in a big timber setting it's like well yeah i can you know, rip a 300 yard shot down this power line <laughs> with my rifle too. Yep. So I think, um, but, but otherwise it is just a challenge. This is like 
always trying I'm always trying to think of creative ways to get a visual in timber because it's easy to write it off and say, well, I just, you can't do that where I'm at. But it's like, well, I mean, it's not, it's, it's worth at least thinking about it and trying it now. It's hard. It's still hard. I will not disagree with that, but I think it's always worth trying to think of. I've had, I've had some success with binoculars when I'm hunting timber, Mm -hmm. although it's, it's very not strenuous. That's not really the right word, but it's, you know, you got to spend a lot of time just glassing off through the woods and the timber. Mm-hmm. And I've caught deer movement that I wouldn't have seen with my naked eye. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it's, you've got to be constantly scanning mm-hmm. deep into those crevices and stuff. Especially and, in low light. Yeah. And so I've, I've given up on that for the most part. I keep them in my top pocket, little mm-hmm. handy compact ones, just to, if I saw a flicker of movement to check it. But otherwise, I mean, it's like I said, it's, it's a lot of effort to, invest in just scanning the woods constantly and if they're that far away they're not in bow range mm-hmm. but <laughs> and those are probably scenarios in which you're already out in the woods hunting yes and so it's like i'm gonna use the glass because i got it but that might not have been a scenario where it's like oh i'm gonna go glass this area yeah it's not timber. an observation right. It's, right. it's it's uh i'm hunting a location based on my scouting or i think it's good but i'm i'm wanting to see catch movement somewhere else or i usually just keep them there in case i see a flicker of movement yeah. and i want to verify what it is and then if I can see it and maybe grunt them my direction, mm-hmm. um, otherwise, I mean, I'm not, I'm not observ- observing. Or yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I often use glass and uh, timber setting in this way. Let's say I'm scouting or still hunting an edge and I start picking up on some sign or I come across a fresh track, looks like it's big and it's going the direction I'm going. And maybe I'm just instinctively and looking at the map seeing transitions like eh, and there could be bedded around here just peeking up because a lot of times if if you spend enough time in the woods we all catch a, deer, a buck has heard us coming in and he's looking at us already mm-hmm. but he can't quite see us yet but his antlers are giving him away and i i mm-hmm. love looking for that and I've, I've picked up on it on a few times over the years but that's always worth it to me if you think you see something or you feel like you can, you know, really get crystal clear through a little spot, even if it adds another 20, 30 yards to your vision, take a look real quick. I'm, I mean, I'm an obsessive glasser, not f- even from the standpoint of just, you know, looking at a big area as much as it's just like, yeah, what's that? Eh, nothing. You know, take a few more steps and you're going to do it thousands and thousands of times before it even matters. But one time it does, mm-hmm. it might be his time sticking out from behind a tree because he hadn't quite seen you yet. And maybe that's when you look over here and you're like, Oh, I could tuck behind this head of grunt. Yeah. And he's coming right down that trail, shooting five yards coming at you. <laughs> but I don't think there's any excuse for hunters not to glass these days. Everybody seems to have a bino harness in front of their yeah, chest. Yeah. <laughs> seems to be the trend these days. Oh, the bino harness yeah. is, a, is kind of a funny one. You know, the most common <laughs> one, one thing that's not glass related, but it's kind of observation related. Something that I've just like happened to notice over time is that if I'm hunting in areas that I've been recently logged and I might be accessing back in on the, you know, packed down roads or trails or whatever, mm-hmm. just in the light of my headlamp, I'm like, oh, there's deer over there. There's deer over there. I'm marking on my map. Mm-hmm. So I'm going back to the truck mm-hmm. and it's like. I'm not out there with a spotlight, but I could still tell there was deer out there just from the reflection of the mm-hmm. eyes off in the distance, and the foliage is young enough that it's like, oh, you know, man, the last three times I've come back to the truck, there's been deer back in that corner. And I go look at it and be like, maybe I should scout back there. Mm-hmm. 
I love listening too, kind of along those lines. If I'm walking out in the dark, even if I can't see something, just hearing deer moving. So I, I feel like sometimes people probably get feeling like they're going crazy when they're walking out with me because I stop so often mm-hmm. and I'm, and I'm kind of picky about it too, where I'll be like, stop, you know, like stop moving around. Cause it's, I'm trying to listen for something or I hear something. Stop shuffling them feet. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but if I hear something, I, I like to listen and see what it does, how it reacts, be conscious of where the wind's blowing. You know, am I spooking it bad or is it just like doing the same thing I'm doing? Like what the heck is that? So I, I also like to do that. And I mean, it's a little bit easier in, and this is, I guess, me assuming, I'm guessing you don't have quite as many leaves in some of like what you would get in like some of the Missouri big woods settings that you've hunted in. Yeah. I mean, not, not quite that bad, but there's still a lot of leaves and in, in, uh, drier periods and in the fall, you definitely, I mean, it sounds Crunchy. like, sounds like you're a freight train going through the woods, but mm-hmm. not quite as high of a, mm-hmm. you know, a density or a layer of leaves that you would get in some of those areas. Mm-hmm. So, so how did you move through the woods? Now I'll, I'll give you an example. I hunted with uh, Aaron and Ted during turkey season. I just accompanied that I wasn't hunting and Aaron was very slow, methodical. And he would walk a little bit and he'd stop. He, I was like, what is he doing? He was just like looking around. I was like, we're trying to get up here to this point. What's he waiting on? And it, and it finally struck me. He's, he's, I always thought I was pretty good at moving through the woods, and, and, and I even talked about it, become one with the woods, but he took it to another level. And I, last time I hunted with you, I think it was in North Dakota, and even then you kind of moved somewhat methodical. Like your next move, you were like thinking about what you wanted to do, even though we had a destination in mind. So do you still do it, uh, that, or do you have it, has it increased mm. in any degree? I mean – if it's an area that is still somewhat newer, then I might be more likely to go slow, especially if I think that like whatever we're seeing is like kind of interesting. But if I know for sure, like all everything's telling me I need to be in this spot to hunt it. Like I'll just go fast until I get close. And depending on my excitement level for that hunt, <laughs> I might stop 300 yards shy and just go, you know, a step every, like I'm leaving at noon. Like I'm getting out there early and just like, <laughs> I had a hunt like that a couple of years ago where I was like, man, I know this box using this particular edge and I was going to have to hunt on the ground. And when I got probably about 200 yards and I started going up this ridge, I just started going, wait till the wind goes, take a step. And it took me probably a half an hour to go that last little bit. And I remember as I was going through this little corridor of high stem cone area, there was a, a scrape and a big old splayed track in that scrape, like heading that direction. I was like, Oh man, like it's going to happen. <laughs> Weather was perfect. Like everything was setting up right. And I kept going down that trail. And then I got to the log, there's a lay down log like this. And there's a tree sitting like this. And there's a big root ball down here. And I was sitting basically right in this corner. So my back was kind of up against that tree. And I had mm-hmm. this next to me and I was sitting on a little stool. I think I might have actually been sitting on the platform. And, uh, I had, you know, let a few hours go by and one deer had, had jumped up when I was getting set up. I think I like stood to stretch cause you know, I didn't really pad to sit on. And mm-hmm. When I did that, a deer jumped up on the, in the, the timber. I was like, oh crap. Like that was, that could have been. It, was it bedded there and watched yeah, it was, you? Well, I don't think it could see me, but I think when I stood, the tree was small enough that you okay, know, the top so, of the but tree. But you got in there so slow and methodical, yeah, it never saw you it, approach. It, it was probably 80 yards. I had no idea I was there until that happened. But I didn't see a big rack on it, so I was like, I don't think it was that deer. 
but it was a deer. I'm like, okay, well, anyway. So I kept sitting there and another maybe hour goes by, stand up and stretch once again. <laughs> and as I'm standing and my bow is, you know, basically sitting on that log, I hear crunch, crunch, crunch from behind me, directly behind me, the same trail that I, there's a little corridor that I walked in on. I was like, well, I can't move now because the tree that I'm standing next to is thinner than my body. So I can't even like grab my bow. So I'm like, well, I'll just wait and, you know, see when this deer walks past me. And it's this, you know, this big mature deer that I was hoping to see. And I see him out of the corner of my eye from here to that corner of that, of the room away. And I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> he hooks around and he goes behind that, uh, that root ball. And as soon as, soon as his eyes went behind the root ball, I grabbed the bow, hit the 360 camera, came back to full draw. And when he came around to the other side, like, meh, meh, trying to stop him twice, and he was just on a mission. When he came by, his mouth was was drooping down. He was like, you know, just kind of head, head bobbing side to side, and he was just on a mission. And it's like I maybe could have taken a really steep cording away shot, but just didn't quite do it. And had I not gone into that area super slow, obviously I, you know, spooked the one deer as quite, you know, as patiently as I was. But after but that, the fact, that, after you had already got set up. Right, but – that the point that deer came in from the same way I did. So where was he? I don't know where he was bedded. He could have been bedding in a gazillion well, he, different spots you, along you that probably ridge. Passed I him probably passed him. But you yeah. and yeah. you were slow and methodical. He didn't detect you. Right. And, and then and he came through daylight. But it, did he did he walk over top of your scent trail? Where you walked walk? right on my scent trail, but continued to go past where I had stopped walking. So he clearly like had smelled and didn't care. I or think it was, might, or maybe he was panting because he was running from where you, he thought you went that way. <laughs> yeah. So, so one one thought was that maybe that was the deer, and he circled back around. That's yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. What time of it year was this? It was October twenty eighth, maybe like prime time. Like it was a very aggressive deer. The, the time when they start really chasing, mm-hmm. you know, leading up to the mm-hmm. the breeding. So yeah, I guess I guess he could have been out chasing does and. It could have. I like that idea though that he could have been out because he didn't. He couldn't see me. I mean, if he did spook from the tree movement, like he would have seen that, but he has no idea what it is. Right. And the thermals were kind of lifting up that hillside a little bit, but I don't think that it was quite. I don't think he could quite get my scent from there. But you didn't get a good a good look on that deer that ran away. No, I, I didn't see a big rack, but could I didn't have, get a great look at it. Been. Yeah. But the, the wind was also blowing kind of down the hill, like the main wind. Mm-hmm. And so there was actually a spike at some point in that afternoon as well that went downwind to me, and, he sp- and that spike spooked, and he ran out. But this deer was, you know, upwind by five yards and no care in the world. I like that question, though, because how do you move through the woods? I think that's mm-hmm. something that is probably my biggest passion in hunting right now. That's to me the number one thing because that's what i like to do the most and i feel like there's oftentimes these discussions about ground hunting and it's like you know there's so much focus on and i i mean i just did the same thing to you it's like well what do you like to set up on what time are you looking for and those all of those things are important but at the end of the day once you start to formulate these theories it's like how do you get in there without just blowing deer and i think it's funny sometimes when i see like a video of somebody and they're going into their stand, like they're going to their spot. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I don't really ever move through the woods like that. I mean, I talk about sometimes being, being moving fast and just covering ground. And 
when I'm saying that, that's still really planned. Like everything is still extremely planned. I mean, maybe to cover some distance and just get back on a trail to cut off. But as soon as you step off there, it's like, okay. Like his example, the first mm-hmm. 300 yards, he was blazing. And, blazing. Then, right, and then you stopped 300 yards before there and, and mm-hmm. crept in the rest of the way. And even like one of the, my favorite things in the world to do is to be a driver in terrain is on a deer drive because I just get to be a deer that's moving fast. And I think that with the wind in, in your favor, you can play that incredibly aggressive and it, it's crazy how much it works. Like all of a sudden you're just right on top of a deer, even a big buck. And he just doesn't know you're there because if you're, if, if you're in tune with it, your speed can vary based off of conditions and, um, when, you know, conditions like wet wind, or even using terrain as cover for sound and movement. And I just think that, uh, one of my favorite, like little moves, a move that I really enjoy, especially gun hunting. Now I wouldn't do this with a bow, but I shot a buck doing this in a muzzleloader drive a couple of years ago. I was coming up the nose of a ridge and my job was to be kind of the main, the, I was in the middle, I was the middle driver. So I was, I needed to keep up with the pace. I couldn't get too far behind because then everything would be done and they had, could get behind the other guys. So I'm going at full bore and I'm going up this hill as fast as I can. And it's so instinctive too in these moments, but like the wind was blowing, uh, I'm sorry, the wind was blowing like this. So I was trying to decide, I'm like, well, which, which side of this finger should I go up? And I'm, I mean, I'm talking, I'm going as fast as I can, can go still under control and still be able to like pull up and shoot and not my heart not be beating so hard <laughs> that I can't hold the gun steady. And just as I'm starting to get to the top, I make the decision to go to the downwind side of that finger and I start to wrap around that. But right at the last second, it's like, I'm going fast, 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 fast. And then it's like, right as my head is about to start to, you know, go around the ridge, it's like pump the brakes and go slow and pick a spot that I can go to where I can use that as cover. And I came around there, and there's a whole bachelor group of bucks. Mm-hmm. And the buck that I shot was rubbing. And it's like, I love the specifics of those moves. And those mm-hmm. obviously vary anything from that high speed to take that back to a setting where you're sneaking down. Again, that example of like cattails and alders, and you're on this little deer trail where there could be a deer bedded inside of 40 yards right now, but and something's telling you instincts or clues or whatever. And it's like, okay, I'm going ultra slow and I'm listening. And as soon as I hear his feet do anything like, okay, now I'm pinpointing on that one spot. And I just, I just really love that. That's like my favorite thing to do when you're in tune with the woods mm-hmm. And you're just feeling confident that there's something there or you saw something. Better yet, you saw something mm-hmm. go in there. Like that's the most fun form of hunting to me. But that's different than other people and that's cool. Like some people really like to, like I know uh, I've heard people say many a times, I like to create a plan of what he's doing, figure out his pattern and know that he's going to do this on this day at this time. And when he does that, that's the satisfying yeah. thing where for me, my favorite thing is, is just like, here's the situation that you didn't expect, make it work. And I feel like that helps, you know, or that's why probably I like that being, you know, in tune with the woods. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also why I like turkey hunting because mm-hmm. turkey hunting is a lot of that. 
I think, you know. What you just described is a lot of times what can occur during turkey hunting where Mm -hmm. you're making a move. you got to get quick there. And because you know he's gobbling right there and you've already figured out about where he's at. And then you Mm got to put the brakes on and then slide up to this tree, get low, and then you get set up. And then all of a sudden, here they come. You you just timed it right. You did everything right. Yeah. That's... That's what gets me fired up, really, as you can probably tell. As yeah. Talking yeah, we had this talk. Yeah. We had this talk last year about your ground hunting and how you're, you're like you're exclusively almost. But mm-hmm. we were talking about how I'm starting to do more and more ground hunting, especially hunting with a recurve, and it is exciting. I mean, mm-hmm. once you, it's it's a risk, or the way I picture it, it's a big risk because there's so many advantages to getting there and getting elevated mm-hmm. and being able to see farther, and that's hard for me to adjust to. It's having limited visibility. Yeah. When you pick a spot and you sit on the ground to hunt, I'm already restricted in my range with a recurve. Mm-hmm. And now I can only see this far. And and I'm like, what? If I was up in a tree, I could see what was going mm-hmm. on over there. Mm-hmm. I may be missing out on something. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> I'm doing yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. And, and so you got, you've really got to commit to that. But it well, is exciting, like you said. Though. Well, and the thing that advantage you have is as a turkey hunter, you're really good at listening. And I, I picked up on something from you that I think I do it, but I wasn't conscious of doing it until you said it. And now I'm planning for it a little bit more is just being able to turn your head to cut the wind in the way that doesn't create that suction on your ear, Mm -hmm. that, that sound can, and it gets even more specific when you're talking about deer feet on the ground. Cause you know, everybody knows it's like you got a wet day and the leaves aren't very loud like you got to pick mm-hmm. up on any little thing if you're trying to get deer moving and the fact that you understand and you're you're so conscious of how to hear really well i think that has been a big part of uh the adjustment to being on the ground and and being prepared for the moment is just listening i, mm-hmm. I there's nothing aside from like the actual act of moving in on one nothing more exciting than being like wait that sound wasn't normal. That wasn't just a squirrel scurrying in, in the leaves. That was something bigger. And sometimes that can be the case and 20 minutes goes by before it actually makes another sound at all. And then, but if you, but if you really tune into that. That's be, the sounds you need to listen to. Mm-hmm. The ones that are just the, the subtle little snap of a twig mm-hmm. or just the slight, that sounds like a mouse mm-hmm. in the leaves. When you hear the squirrels like, and you're looking at them, those, you know, don't even bother listening mm-hmm. for that. I mean, what I'm listening to, um, like when it comes to deer, it's always those little, or just a little, that. I'm like, what was that? And then I ignored it early on. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you hear a little bit more and you finally look. And there's a deer standing in bow range. You're like, <laughs> yeah. how did he yeah. get there? <laughs> yeah. You know? So those are the little sounds you got to listen to when it comes to deer a lot of times. Unless it's the rut and they're just walking through yeah. the timber and leaves. Or chasing. Like yeah. that. But, but that's also an advantage, too, where I think, and this is a question for you that I, that I want to ask, is are you ever in a situation where you're in those those bigger timber where you can't see very much, but the conditions are allowing it so that you can hear pretty far. Have you ever been in a situation where either you've done this or look back on a situation and this could have been an option to hear deer chasing or moving and you could follow or just cut in and just get into that action a little bit more? Because that's something that I always think is is pretty fun to do, but 
it takes the right situation. And curious if um, you've ever done that or if you just in general apply calling to many of your setups. Sorry, I know there's yeah. a lot to, yeah. to, so, to do there. <laughs> so last season I was hunting in one spot that was, was kind of like a spruce mix swamp. Like it's kind of swampy but not like standing water, but then it drops off into like an alder tamarack swamp that is wet. And I was in an area where there's like a trail coming out of it and there was like a scrape line heading up further into the, the spruce. And I could hear one morning just like, oh, that definitely sounds like a deer rubbing a tree. Mm -hmm. Like for sure, that's got to be what that is. And it was probably 70, 80 yards. And I could hear him walking around. I'm like, there's definitely a buck back there. And I could hear another deer. And it's like, it sounds like they're getting aggressive. They're not locking horns, but like you can kind of paint the picture in your mind mm -hmm. of what's going on. And then you can hear him grunting. And it's like, man, like I hope they come in because I was up in the tree. And I was like, but if I was on the ground, like I could slip in. But instead, like in that scenario, I was just kind of playing like, well, eventually and then they they ran across the little you know swamp and i could hear them up on the high ground on the other side and they eventually did come back over and you know they were within range and they're both smaller deer but it was like in that scenario i probably could have gotten down and maneuvered my way to get to a shot um that's just kind of playing that scenario of like uh what you know like when when warb shot that deer the other what was that two years ago mm -hmm. where it's like he made the call to get down and it was the right call yeah yeah um so it's like, it's like playing that risk reward, but yeah, there's definitely scenarios where that could be the case. There's also scenarios where it's like, I can hear the deer. I can hear a buck grunt once and twice. And he's out in the Tamarack swamp. It's like, I can draw a line on a map exactly mm -hmm. where he's going and then where he's going to end up. And then eventually he got into the spruces and then he wrapped all the way back around grunting the whole time, probably grunting 20, 25 times. And he ended up making basically a full loop around me, got back in front of me and then came, walked in like a minute after shooting the light. <laughs> and how long of a time frame was it's that? It's probably, oh, I'd have to look back at the footage to be, to be sure, sure, but probably 25, 30 minutes. So in those situations, hindsight being, you know, 2020 or like whatever you want to say that, like my perspective now, knowing how the story ended, could you have just been like, I'm going to move towards that and just started grunting your way towards him to like, make a few steps and like thinking of it like how people call elk instead of bugling you grunt shake shake a tree make it sound like you're rubbing especially yeah. if you can hear him he's definitely going to hear you like he's going to mm -hmm. hear you way better mm -hmm. than you hear him but if you disguise your noise with grunts and make it sound deer like yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. just kind of get into those next spots and, and similar to what i was just getting all fired up about earlier it's like that's that's what gets me fired up but it's also not everybody's style so like i totally understand that because like there is a huge risk in it you might just get down mm -hmm. and be mm -hmm. like oh i can get there quiet enough and like yeah. take two yeah. steps and boom he's gone yeah he, I mean, or he already turned around and then he sees you getting down and mm -hmm. in, in that specific scenario i probably wouldn't have been able to get closer just because like the area he was walking through is basically you know this much water and then you got cattails and mm -hmm. other marsh grass and alder brush and you've when you're walking through it as a deer you've got like a wall on yeah, the other side yeah so it's like so a you bike. couldn't have got in there and got a shot right. anyway but what i maybe could have done in that scenario is get down on ground level and you know start actually making some deer noise mm -hmm. in addition to calling and and you know maybe doing some kind of raking noise mm -hmm. um i've tried rattling numerous times in the past and just personally have not had much success doing it I have had deer come in and I think in that scenario, I probably tried running a couple times 
did that play a role? I don't know. Would he have come and looped around and like maybe he tried to smell me and didn't perceive a threat and mm-hmm. came back in? Maybe he would have done that anyway. There's no way for me to say for sure. Mm-hmm. But I always have a grunt call on me for that type of scenario. Did you did you have an idea when he was going through the Tamarack about where he was going to pop back out if he no. continued on his course? No, because he was he was going through and it was. I was like, for all I know, he could have just kept going. Okay, so right. even if you got down, you wouldn't have had a anticipation of where he was going to pop out and move to right. that location. Right. Yeah. And even once just... you get down to ground level in those spruces, it was like you could almost see better on the ground level than you could up in the trees. Whereas like when you're up in the trees, it's like, it's like pocket, pocket, pocket. And you're, it's great for drawing back on a deer. Cause you'd be like, Oh, here he is. I'll just draw back when he's behind this giant spruce tree. Mm-hmm. And then you, he walks out and you're ready to full draw. It's great for that aspect. But like, once you get on the ground level, it's like, Oh, it's, it's kind of hard to move now. And you're seeing their legs as much as anything. Yeah. Yeah. I always think that a strategy that would be fun and especially not knowing, um, these areas and being in season would be take those routes. This timing's got to be right. You got to be in, you don't have to be, but November, late October, November, early November. Um, it'd be really fun to just go spot to spot and just rattle, rattle and just cover ground and like just try to get reps in that way where it's almost the same thing as like uh, when trying to locate a gobbler. It's like, Sometimes you're just covering ground, just trying to cast as many calls as possible to get that response. And it's almost that same theory with, or at least in in how I have it drawn up. It's like pick a potential betting location, get as tight to it as possible, rattle. 20 minutes, give it 20 minutes, move to the next spot. Now you're going to miss stuff. You're going to run bucks over, but there could be that one time. If you did that like three days in a row, four days in a row, my, my guess is at some point mm-hmm. one's going to come blasting in because he's actually going to be there. There's probably going to be a bunch of times where he's just not there. But in a low-density area, I think it almost bumps up your odds for him coming fast too because it's like he's laying there. He doesn't know if there's another deer, you know, 100 yards over here or, you know, the next one could be 500 yards away. Then all of a sudden there's rattling just right over here. It's just like – well, I better go check that out. He's just maybe not expecting that. And I, I think that that could work. I'm not saying it's going to by any means. You could try that for 10 years straight and it never worked once, but it seems like it would be fun to try. Mm-hmm. And I, I always just, I guess I always say that to people, hoping that somebody <laughs> someday would be like, yeah, dude, I did that and it was nuts. Actually, I talked to a guy in Minnesota that, that did that. And he shot a, you know, real nice one. It like makes all these ones kind of look uh like little dweebs. Well, these aren't dweebs, that's for sure. Well, this thing was like <laughs> a 200-inch buck. I have two questions. <laughs> that is a big one. <laughs> that he just was like, as he, he bumped into him, his name's Jim. So if you're listening to this, Jim, you know, what's up? <laughs> he shot this buck that um, he said that he was just bouncing from spot to spot rattling, and all of a sudden he was just about to give up on it, and he heard a stick break and looked up. and That's got me intrigued because – I used to rattle um, a little bit, and I've mainly kept it to, like, that later October time frame when I start mm-hmm. seeing those scrapes pop up everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I can't recall ever having any success in afternoons. All my instances of rattling where I caught in a buck, and only one good buck came in to rattle. Most of the times it was smaller ones. 
Um, but I use smaller antlers anyway because they're compact. I can just pull them out. It sounds yeah. like a little six-pointer. Uh, but anyway, they're always fast to arrive, mm-hmm. and and it's always in the morning, never in the afternoon. And so I've given up on that, and I really don't rattle much at all. If I'm in the woods late October, early November, I'll have those little ones with me. So have you seen the same thing, and when do you start rattling? Both both of you, the same question is um, – is it always in the morning where you have the most success or the only success at getting them in there? Um, because I would I'd say, be willing to try that strategy just running around and trying it. You know? I would say um, that I don't think exclusively morning or evening. I don't necessarily think of a time of the day. I think time of the year um, is pretty accurate. I think that if areas are heavily pressured – and people are hunting them a lot that a mature buck would get call shy to rattling at some point. But I also think of it from the standpoint that most hunters that rattle rattle in a tree stand and they make no noise, mm-hmm. man. Have you guys heard bucks fight like two big bucks mm-hmm. fight? Mm-hmm. It sounds like the world <laughs> just is, on TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But even <laughs> then, but even then that's a great, it's, I, I think it's a great example. It's like, the, it sounds like the world is exploding. But it's not the antlers. It's the ground. Logs are breaking. St- you know, leaves are getting pushed back. You could almost forth. rattle one up without rattling. Yeah. You just I mean, make, you just enough make commotion, a bunch of commotion. And they, they're probably going to, yeah. I try when I'm rattling to focus on ground noises and big ground noises more than I worry about any specific strategy with actually touching the antlers together. And a lot of times I'll just lock them and then just kind of just to give you an example of kind of what it sounds like, more of a Grinding crunch, crunch oh. you know, just big mm-hmm. versus like tickling tines, right? right? I want it to sound like two bucks are like physically locked up and they're pushing each other on the ground. And, you know, when two big 200-pound bucks are pushing each other, they're going to make a log like this just snap in an instant. So like breaking big stuff, like, pushing those leaves out are all things that I'm trying to do or I'll bump into a tree or something that I know it's going to shake and all those leaves are going to just doing ridiculous stuff. Didn't, didn't I've you had a one up in Tennessee like that up on top of that hill? Yeah, it was, that was in Ohio, but yeah, Ohio, Ohio, sorry. but on a hill somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but both that time. And then the day before we rattled in a small buck and, um, happened immediately. But what time of day was that? That was the small buck was in the morning. Second one was more like late morning, early, yeah, probably like 10. Okay. And then um, one time I rattled in a big buck with my brother at like 3 p.m. Um, man, there's those are just ones that pop into my brain right away. But to me, rattling so hit or miss. It's like mm. they're either just coming or they're not. That's most probably why that strategy of just mm-hmm. running and gunning, mm-hmm. running and rattling. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, a lot more realistic. Probably the most unrealistic thing is same spot every thirty-minute interval. Yeah, right. Yeah, no no supporting noise, especially if he's just laying there, you know, one hundred and fifty yards away, and he's tired and he's not feeling super fired up. Where, on the other hand, I think if think of this situation, big bucks laying in the cattails with a doe, and all of a sudden you start rattling, and you're eighty yards away. He's like, I got something to lose here. I'm getting up now and I'm coming over there. Where 
if a buck's been cruising all night, he's tired and and, all, and he's asleep middle of the day, and you start rattling, and he wakes up. I mean, for him to change his mood, some bucks' personality is probably aggressive mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. that they could do it. But that's why I think it's so hit or miss. It's like he may hear it and just be like, "I'm like, not going over there. I got I got mm-hmm. nothing to lose." Like, you know. It's but like I don't call know. them turkeys. Mm-hmm. Got to be in the right mood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like that. I mean, I think of a buck coming and flying into a rattling sequence is a lot like a fired up Tom that's yeah. gobbling the whole way in. It's very similar. And the nice thing too is you can hear him coming a lot of times. Like now, the one thing I learned because because you brought up the one on the ridge, <laughs> a have your bow, bow handy. Hand. <laughs> yep, that's the stupidest mistake. Oh, I, I learned about that, that early on because they, like I said, they, they come they quick. quick. When they're coming, they usually show up in the first minute. Mm-hmm. As soon as you put the antlers down, yeah, sometimes you, you don't even get a chance to put them down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that situation, they were still in my mm-hmm. hands, and he looked to my right, and he was already at like twelve yards and coming closer. They're like a hot two-year-old gobbler. When they're ready, they mm-hmm. come running. Yep, that's what it is. So I I've, just uh, yeah, I've never had one come in after I've rattled and I've waited there a couple minutes. It's either they're there or they don't ever show up. I think one other thing that can happen is they can come in way later yeah and come down in cautious like circle down Mm -hmm. and that's why i mentioned earlier if you're doing like 20 minute rattling rattle wait 20 minutes go i think there's still some that you're gonna miss because some big bucks might just be like you know what i don't have a doe i don't really know what's going on over there but i kind of want to check it out and they'll kind of cruise cruise through it and i think depending on the time of year like i could see that happening at the front end of that time frame, like mm-hmm. late October, like let's just say October 25th or December 1st, I could see that happening where it's like you rattle and they're like, eh, I don't really know that I need to go over there, but curiosity right. gets the best of them. I mean, it could happen at any time, but that's kind of when I think that that's more likely to happen. And when the super aggressive thing happens, it's like he's locked down with the dough now, or he knows that, you know, it's time, mm-hmm. and that's when he's coming flying in. But I don't know. That's just my opinion. I don't know. I don't know somebody could else could have totally different experiences. Most your experiences with rattling morning time. I've, I've never had. Much, I don't even know if I've maybe like one or two. But there's not like a scenario. There's not a scenario that pops up in my mind or a memory where it's like, oh yeah, that like what you just described. Like I can't really remember that happening. In a lot of years, I've not really rattled that much. But when I have tried it, I just keep having these experiences mm-hmm. of like, up. Oh, didn't work again, you know. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. You feel kind of stupid after, right? You know? Oh yeah. I, I, feel, yeah. I mean, I feel I worse. Too. I feel yeah. worse after rattling because like, like, if I, I wouldn't have rattled, I probably would have. You know, I feel like if I rattled, nothing happened. I just worsen my I'm, chances. I'm same, I, I think the same way. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna rattle. It's getting that time of year. Then I get them, and I'm usually in a tree, so I can't snap limbs and stuff. And I'm just trying to. Make it as aggressive as I can, and then I put them down, and I get my bow because I know I've had deer come in before. And I sit there, and nothing shows up, and I'm like, "Well, I just scared everything out there. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah, I'm not like, gonna see anything." Well go to the truck. <laughs> but yeah. I stick with it. I think that's probably what uh, I would say would be most most hunters' hang up is that. Yeah, you do it, mm-hmm. and then you do kind of feel dumb. I mean, me too. Like I'm not. I you guys yeah. definitely aren't alone. I'll rattle and do it. And make I don't want a noise and just be like, 
dude, what? Why'd you do that? <laughs> I don't yeah. think I've ever had one rattled in in Minnesota, but in Wisconsin, uh, where it's growing up. Oh, it, here we go, Ryan. Those Wisconsin deer, they're so totally easy, different. right? They're totally different. <laughs> Man, nope, you cross the river, and it just gets easy. One, one spot. No, it was – it was crazy. They would, I mean, it was like you'd rattle and they'd come running in. Um, and I, yeah, I just remember there's a decent sized one came in and I was like probably my second year bow hunting, grab my bow, pull back the arrows up off the rest, you know, end up shooting, I don't know, 15 yards in front of them. It was, it was just an absolute <laughs> show, but, um, but that was one place where it, it, it was just, it was unreal, mm-hmm. like it worked. And now I just feel stupid when I do it, <laughs> honestly. I think sometimes, too, it, like I mentioned earlier, it's just a, it's just a matter of there isn't one there right, right now yeah. to where, like, maybe to help boost the confidence in the situation you just used a second ago where it's like you rattle and you think you scared everything away. It's like, well, there might just not be anything there right now, and 30 minutes from now he could come cruising through. Right. I think that happens a ton, too. Like, I think back on all the times – where I've thought that same thing, but then later one comes through mm-hmm. and it's like, well, he probably just wasn't even in this yeah. zip code at that time, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But do, you, do you blind uh, call for deer grunting? Mm-hmm. A lot. Okay. And we all do. And like everybody in this group, I think you'd be amazed at how much, du- like you can't put every time we blind call into a video. We grunt, rattle, call, like shake branches. We, we make so much noise on purpose. It's it's hard to even actually <laughs> explain that in a in a hunt in a hunting video. And then you do you use grunt calls just kind of occasionally? Like blindly, well, blindly. like when when we were hunting together that one year in North Dakota, we grunted a couple times, and it seemed to come. Like when we, I think we grunted like right before the first deer came in, and then they came in right after. So maybe there's a calming effect there. I think we grunted while the does were there too, at mm-hmm. one point. Um, but I'll do blind calling occasionally with grunt tubes but i feel like i've usually had better success if i knew there was deer there mm-hmm. um but i do think that just generally my strategy moving forward is probably less calling if i'm actually in a tree mm-hmm. or that's the only sound i can make more likely to do it if i'm on the ground where i can add supplemental noises mm-hmm. and maybe instead of bringing a you know nice lightweight compact rattle bag maybe i go in and bring a couple big sheds that can, you know rip it up and down a tree and make mm-hmm. some noise that way and yeah that's actually a preference of mine too that's evolved over the years like the bigger the antlers the better for rattling just big massive like, i'd probably see bigger deer if i took yeah. bigger antlers with me but i don't <laughs> want probably the carry sound better i don't want the bow oh, yeah well like, the ones i have have all those little nodules on mm-hmm. the base and so there's not much to it but you can put them together like that kind of like those black rattle yep. things oh yeah but i just put them in and i can grind them and it sounds mm-hmm. like you're talking about and it's not, I guess the, the mass of them is not huge, so it sounds like two smaller bucks just. Mm-hmm. And I've usually rattled in smaller bucks. Now, I did rattle in a pretty good one one, one year, and that's a funny story. I didn't get a shot because of what my girlfriend did, but <laughs> <laughs> she, I'll, I guess I'll tell her I brought it up. She likes to organize, right? Uh-huh. So she went in my truck, and she organized my stuff. And I like to leave stuff out in the back of my truck, so in the morning I'd get it, and I'd put this on, I'd get this and put it here. And I'd be, have everything. And I get to my tree, and I'm trying to put my camera arm up, and then this part's missing. I'm like, where in the world is it at? Why, why don't I have it? It should have been. She organized, and so she tucked away, and so I didn't end up with it. So I'd rattled, and then so then I'm trying to mess with this, and I'll, here comes a big, 
you know, big eight pointer, tall, nice, like kind of like that in back there in the mm-hmm. corner, but not quite that big. And and because I was fiddling with that, had she not organized anything, I would have had the camera set up and my bow could have made a good <laughs> shot. And I went home. I think I called her before I left the woods. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Like, you were in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever touch my stuff again, you know. <laughs> but back to your point about um, the the. The calling, the reason I asked that, because I used to blind call a lot. And I'd see deer sometimes. I had success with it, so I continued to do it. But uh, probably five or six years ago, maybe more, I had this buck that I um, I saw one evening. And I kind of picked the spot because I thought it pinched down the activity. And had I think it was a doe came through, and then an hour later he come through. And uh, I thought, okay. He may do that same thing tomorrow. He come out of the bed and I know where it was at. Or another buck may do that. I'm going to go back to that spot. I didn't get a shot at him. He kind of slipped through where I couldn't get a shot. Next afternoon, I went in there. And about the same time that he came through, I, I was sitting there alert, waiting. And uh, didn't see anything. And it got past that time. And I decided to do some soft grunts. Just blind call. I'm sitting there. I hadn't seen anything. I made a couple more little grunts, and I just put it away, and I waited. Got dark. I never saw the deer. But as I'm getting down, I saw a light off in the distance. Another hunter had gotten there before I did, and I didn't know that he was in there. And right about the time that deer came through the previous day, he came through the same day, and the guy, he was watching him. He said, I didn't have a shot at him, or I would have shot him, but he was going right. And I didn't know you were there, he was telling me. But he was heading right towards you, and then I heard you grunt. And he stopped in his tracks. And he looked that way, and you grunted again, and he just turned around, and he walked back the way he came back into bed. Mm-hmm. I never would have known that. I, th- I just thought, okay, that deer didn't show up this day. And ever since then, I, don't, I won't call to a deer unless I have visual. Visual, yeah. And because I'm worried about how many other deer out there hear that. And maybe it was something the way I grunted. Maybe it didn't sound natural to him, or maybe he had a bad experience from that location. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in the back of my mind, I'm thinking – if it sounds like a genuine deer calling, you know, I was in a tree, so that is, doesn't sound genuine. Tree mm-hmm. Deers aren't up in the trees. Um, but I tend to think, like, if it sounds actually like a deer, it shouldn't scare them, yeah. you know? But something, and and that's one case. And so ever since then, it's made me call shot if I, the blind call. Rather. Yeah, I'd, I would say I would prefer to see one, but I'm especially likely to blind call if I feel like there's not any good way for them to get downwind you know mm-hmm. and i'm on the ground too i guess i'm always assuming too that i'm on the ground but if I, if I don't think a deer can get downwind to me there's some sort of barrier or even if the barrier is just it's too thick for them to go that direction i think i'm way mm-hmm. more likely to just be calling my way through an area and um yeah i mean but you're doing it on the ground yeah so that's totally that's natural yeah for the sound to be coming from there mm-hmm. And I've I've thought about that also when I'm I'm moving through the woods, like we were talking about earlier, like creeping through the woods and quiet. Mm-hmm. And there's been times where my noise I think has attracted deer, where they For think sure. I'm oh, another definitely. deer coming yeah, through. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think of countless times where that's happened, and it's a lot of times, especially if you're like thinking about a setup, and you're trying to get to that spot or you're at that spot, it can catch you off guard big time. Where yeah, my dad actually shot a buck one time that totally came into him putting his climber together at the base of the tree. 
he was mm-hmm. putting it together and he might have like heard a deer move through you know just out of sight and when as soon as he got down he started putting that together and he was like what's that and, you know next thing you know buck's coming up gets behind a big boulder um one of the areas that like around the area where he grew up and where i grew mm-hmm. up a lot or grew up hunting a lot over where my grandparents still live there's tons of bluffs and boulders like giant rocks you know that a small one would be like the size of that freezer <laughs> and this buck comes up and he said it was on the other side of that boulder and he could see its antlers and he's like yep draws her back as soon as it stepped out from behind that he shot it at like seven yards wow. and he was like it totally hurt and i mean he mm-hmm. you know when i was a kid he would drill that story into my head like <laughs> to to be conscious yeah. of that right? right like if you're moving through the woods and you think you hear something it might be a deer that thinks you are a deer too and I mean, it holds true still. There's one time Jake and I were in Alabama and we were going in to make a, a setup. We had found some sign that we were confident that, you know, was fresh and we were setting up our saddle stuff. And I'm like a stick up and I just hear Jake be like, Zach, Zach. I look up and there's a buck like on the other side. I'm facing the tree, mm. standing on a stick and the buck was like, <laughs> six yards yeah. away you know and just totally nailed us is he doing that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> who's that guy and yeah that didn't work out but yeah i i think that calling making some noise and i mean as long as you can dial it back and make it as natural as possible like we inevitably do not sound like a deer just our cadence is not the same we have two legs they got four mm-hmm. but if you can try to match that or you know, add any supplemental things like grunting. And also a deer stops a lot. Like Mm -hmm. watching a deer walk through the woods, there's rarely a time where they get that zombie mode about them where they are on a line and they aren't stopping, especially earlier or later in the season. They're going to probably stop, look around, take a minute to, you know, see what's going on, and then they'll take off again. And if you can match that and then throw a little grunt in there, I really like that when moving around, but. Well, guys, I think we should wrap this one up because I'm about to run out of card space on that camera. <laughs> yeah. So appreciate the uh, conversation. And I, I feel like I learned a lot about, like, your mentality going into it. And I think that just the conversation obviously opened up and got all over the place, got to talking about calling. And I think that was fun to hear different perspectives. And mm-hmm. I enjoyed, love, I enjoyed I love, interviewing you two guys. <laughs> <laughs> I love talking hunting with you guys, all of y'all. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, hopefully we get to do it a lot more as we continue to live our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it, guys.